Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have three guests today, Tom Cosgrove, Aidan Sharon, and Michael Karapetian. They're all part of uh, website earthday.org. Tom is the chief creative and content officer. Uh, Aidan is the director of End Plastic Initiatives. And Michael is the great global cleanup coordinator. So we're going to talk about their work and their roles. So thanks, everyone, for coming. Thank you. Thanks so much. Excellent. Well, if you don't mind, maybe, uh, Tom, if you can go first, give a little bit of background on yourself, and then we'll go to Aiden and then Michael. Sure. Yeah, I'm the Chief Creative and Content Officer at EarthDay.org, and you know, EarthDay.org is the organization that sprang out of the original Earth Day back in 1970, and our chairman emeritus and former chairman of EarthDay.org, Dennis Hayes, was the original organizer along with Senator Gaylord Nelson back in 1970, and so we we uh, have continued that work year in and year out, both on Earth Day and all year round. And this year, our theme for Earth Day, uh, we have a theme every year, um, is Planet versus Plastics. And it's really focusing on the plastics issue, both from a, you know, I think most people are aware that there's a pollution issue with plastics and there's too many. What I think fewer people are understanding, but research is really emerging quickly, is that there's a real growing health crisis related to plastics. And we'll add that. And that's really a lot of the work we're doing this year is really trying to educate people on the fact that plastics are a fossil fuel product, plastics are oil. And with that come a lot of issues, both in terms of climate, but as well as health issues. And so that's a big focus of what we're looking at across all the programs. Okay. And Aiden, what's uh, your background like? And you know, what's your intro? Yeah. So I'm Aiden Sharon. I'm the director of N Plastic Initiatives. I studied biology at University of North Carolina, Wilmington. I grew up along the beach, saw a lot firsthand around the plastic pollution issue. I joined Earth Day originally as the Canopy Project coordinator and the N Plastics manager. And then we started seeing more and more information coming out around plastic. Like Tom said, the health issues around plastic. And so I've just been engaging more and more. Uh, right before I started, the UN Environmental Assembly declared that they're going to try to do a global plastics treaty to uh, help with the plastic crisis. So that's kind of been my full-time work for the past year or so to focus on the national and international policies around plastics, making sure that any trees that they're going through are actually legally binding. They're going to have some teeth to them, unlike some other international treaties that we've seen. That's kind of where I'm coming from. Um, right before starting at Earth Day, I was a teacher. And before that, I worked in wetland reclamation on the coast of North Carolina. Good. And uh, last, Michael. Yeah, thank you so much for having us on. Michael Carpedian. I, I run the Great Global Cleanup at EarthDay.org. And our goal is to rid the environment of waste and plastic pollution for good. And we try to connect every corner of the cleanup movement. And there's people doing cleanup all over the world. And we try to connect them and really get them part of the movement to help them see that it's not just cleaning up your local park and that's it, but it's it's kind of part of this global movement and to see that's connected to something much more. And what's really great about cleanups is that, you know, for some reason, the environmental movement seems to polarize a lot of people, especially in the United States. But what's great about 
cleanliness is that no matter what your background is, what you think, it's like you can see brash and in your environment in your local park and the river and realize that it's not really quite supposed to be there. And a lot of people, you know, love getting involved in the environmental movement through doing cleanup. And, uh, you know, it's a huge help, especially now that we're focusing on, you know, plastic, like cleanups is a huge part to get people involved and get them to see how devastating it really is, but also give them a way that they can get involved in and make a real change in their community and in the world. Okay, excellent. Well, maybe we can start with cleanups. How are they typically organized and, and where? Is it a, a beach? Is it a park? I mean, like who decides and how are these things orchestrated? Yeah, great question. So they're honestly anywhere that trash is, you know, if you're on the coast, typically it's going to be be at the beach. You know, we have organizations all across country and all, all across the world who are part of our network that do clean up. And what's really great is that once you get connected with these uh, organizations, you can go out to these beaches, to these locations. And a lot, of, a lot of organizations do them every month, do them, you know, every, you know, every weekend. But a lot of them typically do them around Earth Day um, or World Cleanup Day in September. And luckily, we have a tool where if you go to earthday.org forward slash cleanup, and we have a map right there and you can find cleanups that are happening near you. And as we get closer to Earth Day, that map is going to be filled up. Do the cleanups have a significant effect or like what have you seen makes a successful one versus one that, that fails? Yeah, so... You know, that's kind of the issue that a lot of people run into is that you have these amazing groups that go out and remove thousands of pounds of waste out of the river. And then a month later, the same amount of trash is there. And it's kind of like a never ending, you know, like a never ending tap, really. But what we're really focusing on is how do we turn these cleanups where people are just going picking up trash and it's the same thing year after year, same amount of trash or sometimes even more. How do we turn it into something more than that? And we've been working with a lot of partners and we're trying to build this program now to create um, plastic and trash audit in our cleanups so that, you know, our partners can go out and essentially create evidence of the trash that they're picking up and what brands are polluting the most. So that's one way we're trying to, you know, make it more successful. And there's a lot of organizations out there that already do this. But I, you know, I count it a win anytime someone who uh, isn't really part of the environmental movement take that initiative and that agency to, to go out in there. So are there places where the cleanup stays or pretty much everywhere it's done? You know, like you said, a month later, all the trash is back. Yeah, you know, it does vary per uh, location and per ecosystem, right? And, you know, a lot of rivers, like there's a lot of cleanups on, on rivers. We remove you know, lots of trash out of rivers and we go dispose of it properly, whether it's, you know, through recycling channels and most of it ends up in the landfill. But, you know, if we're not focusing on those upstream solutions that, you know, Aiden does a really great job of, I mean, his guy knows everything about these upstream solutions. You know, if we're not focusing on that, then the trash is just going to keep showing up on the rivers, on the beaches. On top of the upstream solutions, it comes down to, you know, behavior change downstream. No, not not to litter or where to dispose waste, you know, to stop using these plastic products. In the yeah, well, let's go to Aiden for a second. So it seems like, you know, you guys have direct evidence that the cleanups only do so much. You got to go upstream. So what are some of the initiatives upstream that you guys have worked on that have actually had an impact? So one of our main focuses is the Global Plastics Treaty that I mentioned earlier. And it's not official yet. It's supposed to be signed at the end of this year. Uh, but we're going to the next set of meetings that will occur around Earth Day um, in Ottawa, Canada. And one of our main goals there was to get help mentioned inside of the Global Plastic Treaty in a more you know accountable, reasonable way. I originally help was mentioned only a couple times, but after going through a few of the meetings, I ended up working with delegates of different countries, other organizations 
kind of made health one of the larger parts of that treaty. Outside of the international field, we're pushing for the Bravery from Plastic Act in the United States to go through. It was first introduced in 2021. It was reintroduced in 2023. So we're working with groups of senators, other government offices to make sure that those upstream solutions are really thought about and really implemented throughout the country and internationally. What we don't want to see is these meetings be overrun by the petrochemical industry and petrochemical industry lobbyists, people that are pushing for oil to be inside of the conversation more. So something else that we've been focused on is making sure that the environmental world and the people at large are heard in a louder voice than those that are just working for big oil. Okay. So is it the production of these plastics is the, the main problem or is it consumers are just, you know, it's, it's so accessible to consumers that they just use the products and throw them wherever they are. Like what, when you poke at both, you know, an industry and an individual consumer behavior, like what is the pushback like from both? So we don't want to blame the consumers for it. Like it's the most convenient, closet is one of the most convenient things out there, but the issue is we have other solutions for it. So we, what we need to target is the production side from every step of the plastic formation it is harmful to the earth or starting from when it's oil and they're pulling out of the ground you're having emissions there you're carrying up the ground areas that are near these production sites have higher rates of cancer higher rates of neurological disorders and then we go down the line to when plastic is disposed and you've seen and everybody around the world has seen that recycling as effective as we were in the United States, we only recycle 9% or some stats say 5% of our plastic weight. So we really need to target those upstream, start reducing production. Uh, that's why one of our main key points is a 60% reduction in production by 2040. It may not be Milan, and some others are kind of focused on going a little bit further, but we think that's a more palatable way. And once we target the single-use plastics alone, that accounts for 50% of plastics that are produced. So single-use plastics are ones that you use one time. So that Pepsi bottle and maybe sitting on your counter or your Coca-Cola bottle that may be sitting on your counter. You can use it one time, either recycle or throw it away and it can never be used again. So what we want to focus on is not blaming the consumer, but rather putting all the blame on the production and the producers of plastic. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What about a, a subsidy? You know, if I'm Pepsi and I produce all these bottles, what if you um, subsidize me or give me some kind of a break, tax break, whatever it may be, if I use, uh, you know, if I reuse the plastic, if I go and I contract with the landfills and I try to get back enough to make it feedstock again, I don't know if it's even viable, but is there a way to do that to incentivize them instead of just you know, hit them with a stick? So one of the issues we're seeing is that even once you recycle that plastic, you can't necessarily use it more than once, or even if you can use it more than once, after it's been recycled, it can't be used for food, so it's, not, it's no longer food-grade safe. So them coming out and saying, hey, we just take these plastic and make them into new materials, it's kind of disingenuous because they're not making it into new bottles. They're just making it into something else that just gets discarded immediately again. So it's just kind of delaying the inevitable 
just a little bit further. And these companies made so much money already. I just don't see the incentive for governments to kind of give them more money on top of what we're already handed over. And I, I just to add to that, Richard, there, I think, you know, most people have probably turned over a bottle or a piece of plastic or a packaging or whatnot and seen those, you know, the re- little recyclable symbol and, and then sitting there. And those numbers, the resin identification codes go from one to seven and they're different types of plastic. And it's meant to be sort of a means to describe the types of plastic and how they can be recycled. And the truth is that save for numbers one and two, almost nothing else actually is recycled. Many of them are technically possible to be recycled, but there aren't facilities to do that kind of recycling because they're either cost prohibitive or other reasons that they're just not being done. And so there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there purposely being done to sort of yeah. put out the message that, you know, all this stuff is recyclable. You just have to do it, you the consumer. And the reality is we, we can try as hard as we want to, and most of that stuff never even makes it towards the next step. And as Aiden said, oftentimes if it does, you know, it's degraded and oftentimes it still ends up in the oceans and it still ends up in rivers and it still ends up in places it shouldn't be in microplastics and nanoplastics. So, you know, Yes, that process could be better, but no, that isn't, unfortunately, that's not the solution. What about having X number of companies contribute to a fund that would fund science to make things actually recyclable, not just downcycled, but reusable, you know, let's say food grade or something that's really useful. What if they contribute again to a fund like that, that would fund that kind of research? So that is some part of the Global Plastics Treaty, which is still in negotiations now. A large part of that is figuring out sustainable development of future plastic, but there's already so much plastic out there that there's no reason to develop new plastic. And so one of the things we try to do is incentivize that development. The, the worry is that plastic just isn't chemically sound to do that. There's just no possible way currently to do that. And if we come up with a solution, it's going to be too expensive for the next 20 to 30 years. So we're continue trying to do it. And then we're going to be faced with some other issue down the road, I'm sure, whether that be the emissions to try to re- properly recycle it or turn it into something new. So that the only solution we have currently is start holding up production, start making sure that production is reduced. Yeah, it just seems like a tall order. Why not do this? You know, why assume that it's going to fail? So on top of this, I think, you know, like plastics has in the history of humanity has been you know, an amazing advancement. But in terms of like what it's led to environmentally and to our health is, is really devastating. And I think part of the solution may be going back to before plastics and really in the grand scheme of things that was only 70 80 years ago you know going back to you know glass bottles or aluminum cans and and focusing on that instead of plastics i mean there was a shift in the 70s with uh, coca-cola and pepsi when they shifted towards plastic bottles because it was just more economically sound and i mean it's going to cut into profits but if we look at the cost of what it what it's doing to the planet i mean going back to what we did prior i think is is something that overlooked and should be focused on and the more we focus on that you know eventually it might become an even better economic uh alternative to plastic okay you know we haven't even talked about the issue of microplastics i've done a number of um interviews on that and that seems just like you know plastics times a billion problem you know getting into people getting into animals i mean just getting into the environment is it just too terrible to contemplate or you know how does the uh, microplastics uh, creation from these plastics interface with the plastics treaty and the work you guys are doing yeah um, i think that'll build off of that so every plastic out there is going to degrade in one way or another the issue with microplastics is we've kind of just started figuring out that they're around like it wasn't until 15 years ago that we started truly realizing that plastic that we thought was degrading into the environment isn't actually degrading it's 
smaller. And one of the things that we found in our research is that it's starting to enter the bloodstream. It's starting to cross the blood-brain barrier. It's found in the placentas of pregnant women. It's found in children that are unborn still. So it's just, it's everywhere. And while it is daunting, we're hoping that the Global Plastics Treaty addresses microplastics as part of the whole issue. So microplastics is not separate from the pollution issue. It is a major part of the pollution issue. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not there. I mean, it's floating up in the air. It's in the water you're currently drinking. It's in blood right now. And as terrible as it sounds, like as long as we have a strong treaty and we can kind of work together as well as we did in Montreal Protocols 90 to address the ozone issue, we can come up with solutions whether that, in our opinion, that is, you know, reducing production of plus outright until we can really get a handle on what these microplasts are doing. Like, there's just so much to learn still about this product that's just part of every aspect of our life. You can't do anything anymore without touching plastic, yet we don't know how terrible end of life is for these products. And one thing that we want to focus on is that microplastic is plastic pollution. It is not a separate issue at all. For each piece of plastic that's there can turn into millions and billions and trillions of microplastics. So, you know, getting the, the bulk out of the system, like, you know, if you do a monthly cleanup on a river, I'm sure it would help. I don't know how much it would help. And if people looked at, you know, the microplastics load once the cleanup's done, you know, throughout the month, maybe it's totally insignificant. I don't know. No, actually, we met with the researcher out of, oh, I believe it was Norway. And they and they tested where they pulled out, you know, they regularly did cleanups on this beach and they measured the amount of microplastic. And it was significant, the amount that regularly doing these cleanups did, how much, like, how little the microplastics were compared to when the trash was still in the ocean. So yeah, cleanups actually help a lot on the microplastics issue. So it's not as, you know, we, as important as upstream solutions are, and they are hugely important, you know, being just a regular part of the community and taking care of your community through cleanups is, is extremely effective, you know, as we continue to work on these upstream solutions. Yeah. And Richard, I think, you know, there isn't one solution here and there isn't one path all these things are important. I think, you know, the cleanups are important for that local area. They're also really important as a way for people to, to understand the issue and to build education around around the issue of the plastics crisis that we're facing. But, you know, the reality is that this is, this is an existential issue, much like the climate issue, in that it is everywhere. You know, there was just some research, I'm, I'm sure you probably saw, where we found microplastics in clouds. It, it's literally everywhere. There's no, there's no place it is. Right, it's in the air we breathe. It's in the food we eat. It's in the clothes we wear. It, it's literally everywhere. And, and we put together this uh, report uh, called "Babies Versus Plastics," primarily because we just saw the growing concerns and just pervasive nature of plastics and microplastics in the environment across the board, and how particularly you know the vulnerable populations like babies and then some young children are being affected by it. You know, because of behaviors like mouthing and crawling and all those things that babies do, their risk is incredibly high. And they're taking in many, many times more microplastics than adults are. That's terrifying. If you look at sort of, you know, and I think Aid can speak to this, but there have been physical audits, human audits, where we're looking at humans of different ages. And unfortunately, the younger you are, the more plastics are in your body, right? And then accumulates over time. I mean, so it's an issue that is going to continue to get worse. And the solutions are multiple. You know, it's it, we have to do things locally and grassroots. We have to get people involved in clips. We have to be pushing for things like the treaty. Ultimately, we have to stop producing as much as we're producing. And that, that's the real solution. And it's a hard one, right? Because, you know, I challenge people every day when I talk about this issue, trying to find minutes without touching plastics. 
even if you think you just did, you failed because you breathed it in. It's impossible to escape, right? That's a scary thing. And so I think what we're trying to do is raise the issue of like, yes, plastic pollution is bad and it's unsightly and it causes all kinds of issues, but it's also much, much worse than that because the microplastics are everywhere. And so, you know, I think we really have to think about, and look, we're for every solution potentially that can help with this problem, as long as it's, you know, doesn't cause another environmental issue, of course. But so, you know, if we can get governments incentivizing companies to do the right thing, great. If we can put in legislation that can really start to slow production, great. You know, if we can really think about what are the, all the alternatives, and you know, Michael mentioned going back to things like glass bottles and, and cans, there are also all kinds of new innovations out there that we can push towards. I think, you know, really what we have to think about is how do we get to the next stage? How do we get to that world where plastics aren't in everything we see, touch, and create? And we get to a point where it's not a problem we go five minutes about, you know, interacting with plastics or microplastics. What would be a main material that would replace the use of plastics? What could it be? We don't know yet. So that's one of the things, I mean, there's plenty of research and development going around and trying to find a solution to these, whether it's some sort of bioplastic. The thing that people are most worried about, though, with those bioplastics is that they might end up being just as bad as the, you know, the petroleum-based plastic. So it's just something they have to do vigorous testing for, and they're just Seems to be a little bit, to be a little bit more careful around this new generation of plastics, this new types of materials, rather than what we did with, you know, petroleum-based plastics and just releasing it everywhere. So it's just we we want there to be development of a new, you know, new thing, whether that's going back to aluminum and glass, like Michael has said, or just coming up with a new material. But we have to make sure that it's not going to have the same environmental and health effect that current plastic. It's difficult. Yeah, definitely difficult. And I'll, I'll add, like, you know, on the consumer side, right? Because we're, we're really talking big picture. And when I think, you know, as important as it is, like taking a look at your own life as like an individual and looking around your house and figuring out where, like start with single-use plastic. Where can I get rid of single-use plastic? You know, oftentimes it's just grocery bags and things like that. And you can easily replace that with reusable bags or, and I recently just bought these like mesh, like cotton bag for uh, like produce. So, you know, I still don't have to just like chuck them into my car. I can just put them in then actually way better for the fruit. It's just looking around your home. Where can I do better? What's one thing at a time that I can eliminate in my life to like, get plastic out of my life? Next thing you know, your habit is to use these alternative products, whether it's wood, glass, aluminum, cotton, um, instead of using, you know, what's so easy to use, which is just polyester and plastic and things that, quite frankly, are poisoning us. But I think there's a lot you can do as an individual to take that agency in your life. And I mean, one problem I've heard is fibers are a huge component of microplastics. They can come from clothes, you know, synthetic fibers. So, I mean, I don't think most people know that plastics are so pervasive, like, you know, a car, most of the whole dashboard. I mean, everything in it, they're just like everywhere. You know, and again, clothes, I don't even know how. So when I'm sure people have analyzed, you know, what ends up in lakes and streams, and what ends up in people's bodies, you know, preferentially, what are the main culprits? Or you know, there's so many different ones that no one still knows. Like, what are the probably the worst of the worst in, in terms of a plastic world? So I did speak on that a little bit. One of the main culprits we're seeing, like you said, is those microfibers coming off the clothing. We have another initiative trying to prevent fast fashion and going back to either reusing clothes or going out making sure your clothes are just one material, such as cotton, some natural-based materials. But one of the main things they are seeing is that fibers coming off, and it's not just from the clothing, but the same thing that made from the clothing, also on fishing equipment. So fishing's huge across the world. And a lot of those nets and things are made up of nylon or some other type of synthetic fiber that people don't realize plastic. And once it hits that water and it immediately starts to grow, 
it's just a massive amount of sunlight, so it immediately starts degrading, salt water degrades it, moving around in the water, just shedding all these fibers at the same time. That's one of the largest issues. And then the other issue is just those single-use plastic bags, bottles. I think at the top of the list is those microfibers shedding off of fishing material and clothing. And that one is going to have to be those single-use plastic, such as plastic bag bottles. And then we start diving into the packaging part of things. So 50% of single-use plastic is packaging alone. Packaging that, you know, we didn't have 50 years ago, but for some reason we have to wrap everything tightly plastic seal and you can't go to the grocery store without running into all its plastic. So it's kind of three main culprit and then a crap ton of other stuff that's out there, unfortunately. I think if you would walk into a grocery store 20 years ago and take a picture and then walk into that same store today, you'd be shocked the difference. Ridiculous. Like, like going to a restaurant, you know, they used to just have metal knives and forks to go get them. Now they have plastic wrapped in plastic. It's stupid. What's the point? I mean, everything is, you know, they force straws on you everywhere. Like, you don't need it. I mean, you've probably all seen the bananas wrapped in plastic. <laughs> it comes with its own packaging. I mean, you know, like, we don't need to be doing these things. And yet, you know, there we are. And it it's hard to understand how we got there. I think, you know, you brought up fashion. And it's an incredible amount of waste that comes from, from fashion and so much of it, our clothes that have actually never even been worn. With some of the big fast fashion companies, their return rates are 40 to 50% of their inventory. And the vast majority of that inventory just gets destroyed. So, you know, all those clothes being made aren't even being worn. And they're just essentially making their way into the ocean. We can do much better. That's a fixable problem, right? If we just got on that, that's a fixable problem. We don't need to be. One of the other issues with the fast fashion stuff is that, you know, us in the United States or us in the Western world, or we'll call it that, aren't really seeing the issue because we take all the waste and we ship it down to the global south. So we're shipping it to Africa or South America. Chile was just, you know, became the dumping ground for fast fashion. We just saw mass burn-offs of piles and piles of unworn t-shirts, sweatshirts there that are primarily made of, you know, petroleum, essentially. So that material that comes from petroleum is just being burned off, just out of sight, out of mind for us, but, you know, really affected the people down in the global south. I read a book years ago called Cradle to Cradle, and they gave an example of, like, a furniture company and that designed its furniture specifically to be taken apart later and reused. Is there any possibility with certain products that uh, they'd be high enough value where the company could do a buyback program? You know, you buy a couch and, uh, you know, within five years, if you want to trade it in, they'll give you $50 towards another couch. You know, they'll buy it back from you to reuse it. You know, plastic bottles at the low value, but I don't know, would that work for any manufacturers and would that help? Absolutely. I think it comes down to the manufacturing, whoever, well, the company that makes it to one, make a high enough quality product for that to happen and for them, you know, for that to be economically feasible and for them to want to do it. We kind of got to the point where as a society, we're just so used to using these products and throwing them away. But I mean, you know, as Tom and Aiden touched upon, like these products are just like they're cheap and it's just straight weight. I think if we looked at our products as, you know, more of an investment instead of just something we use to just use and throw away, invested in trying to, you know, use higher quality product, you know, a lot of these companies, I think, I think there's a huge opportunity to, to make you know, what you described as such a circular economy, I think opportunity to really step into that, especially as, you know, consumers are becoming more. I guess, yeah, it's really multifaceted. You have to hit it at every level. 
continuously ongoing manufacturers, the people and their behavior and, you know, cleanups and just, yeah, it's very, very tough. Do you feel like the environmental movement is helping what you guys are trying to do or are they too sensationalist about it or is it not enough? Like, what do you see as the, uh, you know, there's still, even within the environmental world, there's a lot of voices, you know, speaking out for attention. So is it hard to navigate what you guys want to get done or is it, uh, is it being drowned out by other voices or what do you see? No, I mean, I think we're all working for a common cause. And classage is just one of the many issues we're dealing with in society currently. I don't think any environmentalists are really drowning out the word. Or I even mean, awareness is one of the biggest things that we do. So any amount of attention we can bring to this issue is good attention. As long as people just keep mentioning it, we're, we're for it. I mean, there's some people that go a little bit further than we may, but it gets views, it gets people kind of put, and then they kind of start going down the rabbit hole the same way that we did, start diving deeper into those issues start to see that there's things that they can do whether that clean up or signing on to some of the petitions that we do or just kind of just paying more of our attention to the ways they interact with the world and the things they're doing. So now I, I don't think the environmental world is kind of hurting us in any way or hurting us in our goals. I will add on to that and I think you know as environmentalists and part of the environmental movement I think it's also important to one bring awareness which we're doing but also showcase ways to make a difference invite people to get along or come along with what we're doing you know I mean all the stuff that we talked about is like is serious stuff and you know, if we don't tie in that like way to get involved and take action, it can quickly become, you know, for the people reading and hearing about this of despair, because it is really scary. And it, it's stuff that's just outside of our control as individuals. So I think as a movement, it's very important as we discuss this stuff to tie in, you know, how everyone can get involved to make a difference to this. So it's not just bad news, bad news, bad news. And there's nothing, you, this is a serious issue that we're facing, but this is how you can. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best way for people to get involved, to find out about what the important issues are? You know, what's the common resource for people to go to? Well, I think if people want, if they can stop by uh, earthstage.org, we have a ton of resources about the issue, a ton of resources about what you can do personally, whether that's, you know, things in your own, your own life, your own home your own community or advocating ways to advocate for change at a, a government level, the treaty, for instance. And then, you know, organizations within our organization, like the Great Global Clean, which Michael runs and wants to get involved in, in that program. So I think there's a, you know, we have a lot of resources available to folks and we also have many, many partners in the space and we encourage everyone to, to look to them as well, you know, because I think there are solutions. It's a huge problem, right? And I think for many people, it's such a big problem. You don't want to think about it. You know, we've gotten this far. And uh, I think as humans, it's incredible what we can do and how we can innovate towards new directions and new things. And so I think we're optimistic that we're going to find ways to th get through this, but we have to be pretty diligent about it. And so encourage everyone, whatever the situation is, you know, whether you've got a little time to put towards this or a lot of time, whether you're an activist or someone who's just, you know, trying to make things better in their own home, all that's great and important and part of the solution. So we encourage everyone to get involved. All right. Well, very good. Well, thank you, all three of you, for coming. I don't know if I envy your work. Thank God you guys are doing it. So thank you, everyone, for coming. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Richard. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having us. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.